Hello and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are truly living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. My name is Josh Tate, and so thankful that you are listening here today. Just so you know, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to facilitate conversations and tell stories that will encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Man, we are already halfway through season one. It's hard to believe. We release episodes every other week, and that will be through 2020. And we've been so blessed over the first three episodes uh, to hear some amazing feedback from people and all the downloads on the stories of Imam Majid and Dr. Russell Moore and Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. Of course, Pastor Bob does an amazing job of balancing those uh, serious topics and the stories along with uh, throwing in some laughter and you can see true friendship uh, out of the conversations that they have. So if you haven't heard those three, make sure you take some time for them because there's so much gold uh, in those stories. And today, speaking of gold, today we have Dr. Craig Considine, who is a global speaker, media contributor, and is based at Rice University. He's an author of many books and articles on Christian and Muslim relations, including his most recent book, The Humanity of Muhammad, A Christian View. Yes, you heard that right. An American Catholic who has studied and uh, is known as a scholar of Muhammad. So yes, this conversation is sure to be very interesting as we will hit on why he studies Muhammad and why he wrote this book, uh, what fellow Christians feel about it, what Muslims that he knows feel about it, and really how understanding other religions can strengthen your own beliefs and your relationships with others. And Bob will also give some feedback on uh, how he got to know people that are different from them and then why he believes that has shaped and impacted him in a large way. Uh, So we're excited for this conversation uh, with Dr. Considine and really for full show notes and past episodes and the full transcript of this episode, you can go to bobrobertsjr.com slash podcast, bobrobertsjr.com slash podcast. Uh, And while you're there, why not go ahead and rate and review our podcast and share it with others if you enjoyed it. So here we go. We're going to dive right into it. Dr. Craig Considine with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. here on the Bold Love Podcast. Enjoy. I'm Bob Roberts, and I am excited to have Craig Considine with me today. This guy is brilliant. Now, Craig Considine, talk to me about that. I think about toothpaste when I hear that. The first time I heard you introduce, I thought, what are they doing calling this guy toothpaste? That's a real last name? It's a, it's a real last name. Um, it is from a very small uh, location in County Clare in the west of Ireland, right by the Cliffs of Moher. There are about three villages, Lisconnor, Lisdenvarna, and Doolin. Every Considine in the world is literally from one of these three villages. The two theories on the history of the name, one is that it is a derivative, it's basically the English version of Constantine, the first emperor that brought Christianity to the Roman Empire. But when I was living in Ireland, 
I got a little bit more into the, the, the linguistic side of things. And I think there's pretty solid evidence to suggest that the term Considine means gentle and meek. Oh. And Bob, you'll like this. The name itself goes back to the 11th century. And there was a bishop of Killaloo, which is a major diocese in County Clare. And his name was Considine O'Brien. He was part of the O'Brien clan. And at the time, priests and bishops were still marrying in Ireland. And Considine's sons um, took the name Mac Considine. So son of means Mac. And Considine O'Brien, the bishop, was at the Council of Lateran um, in, I couldn't, 1234, maybe? I might be butchering. 1236, I think. Yeah, something like that. So, <laughs> so the name is, is deeply, yeah, it's deeply rooted in, in Ireland, very much so. But people think it's like Italian, Greek, because uh, of Constantine. So I get, I get a lot of variations. Now, you lived there for a while? I did. I lived in Ireland for five years. And this is really where I reconnected with my faith at a very deep and personal level. Well, tell me um, the story. I'd be well, curious to know about yeah, it. I mean, it was, it was a combination of a lot of, to be honest, a lot of stresses in my life. It was a very difficult time for me living in Ireland. One, I was doing a PhD, which is hard enough in itself. <laughs> I had no money. I was living relatively rough. And I ran into people that uh, took me off my path, kind of got mixed up in some relationships that were not good for me. <clears throat> and I kind of, to be honest, I hit, it's not rock bottom, you know, it's not like I was, I, I had lost everything, but I got to a point where I started thinking to myself that something's off here, that I've, I've forgotten about my creator. I forgot about God. And I remember very, very vividly, I lived on Earl Street South in Dublin, and I walked out of my house not feeling good, physically or mentally. And I was like, I need to change. Something needs to happen. And right as I was feeling that, and I swear to God, the lamppost right above me went and exploded. Wow. And I swear to God, and I mean, I have the goosebumps just thinking about that. And I said to myself right there, and then it was a pact with God I made. I was like, I will never, I will never leave you again. Mm, wow. And from there, I, I really actually started practicing consistently for the first time in my life. As you know, there are so many Catholic churches in Ireland. So I could literally just walk out my door and I could go to mass. So I incorporated that into my life and I was able to travel Ireland and how, how old were you then? I was it was 25 to 29. So I was a young I was a young man and I'll never forget it. I mean, it there was there's something about Ireland I I suppose. It it brings out the best and the worst of humanity and I think history kind of <laughs> history teaches us that. But um well, I think did you the, get your PhD in. It was sociology at Trinity College, um yeah. which which was different for me because my previous studies 
were in politics and international relations at the master's and the undergraduate level. So that was also part of my transformation in, in Dublin. I was learning a completely new discipline. So it was, um, you know, it, as they say, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And it definitely did that. And it also, um, I'm glad it happened. You know, it's one of those things that it was really difficult to go through, but I really do thank God for this awakening. Um, and I'll never forget it. That's good, Craig. That makes me happy. Let, let me ask you this. Uh, I recently read that you are a public intellectual. What is that, Craig? Uh, <laughs> I apply for that. How, how do you become a public? In, I'm 62. Is there any time? I mean, you're a young guy. How, how, do you, how, how does one become a public intellectual? Well, I will say um, that is a you know, a self-ascribed category, uh, just to give people a feeling of um, who I am as a professional. So I do work at an academic institution, Rice, but I'm not necessarily one that um, really even enjoys the ivory tower. Like I don't, I don't like necessarily um, the, the heavy academic jargon and, and the theories um, I really think as academics, it's our duty to share our knowledge with everyone, not just our colleagues and our peers. So to be a public intellectual is someone that is able to compress some pretty complicated historical moments, or let's call it sociological issues, in a way that your kind of, quote, average American can digest. I love that. Yeah, and I do it, Bob, through through stories. That's honestly my main vessel of teaching complicated things. It's just stories about about people and relationships and time. And I think um, that's what resonates with people. Then you're a good public intellectual because you are very uh, humble. I remember uh, I started following you. I didn't realize who you were and, and so forth, but. Uh, you had come to an event I was at, uh, and I was friends with the man who was putting it on. And I noticed you sitting by yourself. And I, I don't know if you even remember this, but I walked over and introduced myself to you and, and uh, started taking you around just, and I thought, this guy is smart. And, and, and I didn't like you sitting by yourself. So you, you hadn't yet been to that particular uh, maybe country or whatever. But what stuck out in my mind, uh, I knew you were a very educated man, but you were easy for me to talk to, and you were very humble and gracious, and you're, you were around a lot of significant people. You spoke incredibly well. I mean, you set the audience on fire, and at the same time, you weren't full of yourself like some people can uh, come across. I, re I really appreciate that about you. Let, let me ask you this. Let's get to, to the heart of it. You're Catholic and you're promoting Muhammad. Now, what are you doing that for, man? I mean, we want people to follow Jesus. And <laughs> Let me first say something about being humble, Bob, because this gives me an opportunity to talk about my parents. Mm. That's the reason why I'm, I'm humble. They always taught me um, to treat every single person the same way. So I'm very grateful for them. Muhammad. Okay. Lots of reasons why. I think the first, and I, I kind of, I kind of look at it from different, like kind of 
identity angles. So the first one is kind of as a, as a scholar. And Muhammad has, I think, been largely defamed, misunderstood, especially among Christians. And this is kind of going back to some of the earliest writings from the seventh century that we have of Muhammad that really didn't set a appropriate way of evaluating his life. It was, it was very sensational. He's the, the false prophet. Okay, okay, let's stop right there for a second. You just said something I didn't know. So I don't buy books on Islam or Muhammad from Christian bookstores because historically they're not accurate most of the time. It's yeah. like we want to win this argument. And a lot of things I read, I found out really weren't true. You're telling me this happened. I thought this was a modern thing that evangelicals picked up the torch. You're saying it was going on in the seventh century? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Wow. Uh, John De- John of Damascus in 640 is largely responsible for really framing Muhammad as a as a false prophet, as someone that you know was the antithesis of Jesus. And I think according to most scholars, John of Damascus never met Muhammad, probably had few, if any, interactions with Muslims. So it was a blatant, like, you know, polemical, if you want to call it that, but it was was slander, you know, It it was like propaganda. And then when we actually go into history, talk about how Muhammad has been depicted by Christians, Dante, right? 13th century poet, I think he was 13th century. Uh, he places Muhammad in like the the belly of the hellfire. Like that is like, you know, if if one person is to be there, Dante chose Muhammad. I mean, that's not great at all. Then we move up into history, and like Martin Luther was was uh, speaking about Muhammad in, in not great ways. Voltaire, uh, some other thinkers that are kind of linked to Christian civilization. And I think it's a modern phenomenon, actually, Bob, that Christian writers are actually starting to think of him in more positive ways. You know, we have people like uh, Karen Armstrong, uh, who is a great author. Uh, I think Gary Wills is also someone who, um, in his engagement with the Quran, he has a deeper understanding of Muhammad. So as a scholar, I think it's really important that we are fair that we have to look at the the sources and the big picture to evaluate someone like Muhammad. Now, secondly, I honestly think that some of Muhammad's teachings and his life and legacy is actually quite relevant to social conditions and social problems today. So I dedicated a chapter in my recent book to anti-racism and how Muhammad transcended being merely a non-racist person being an anti-racist person. I mean, that is, I think, admirable. And these are, that's just one example of what I respect. And then lastly is the Christian element. So one of the defining features for me as a Christian, as someone who was raised Christian, as someone who is always aspiring to walk in Jesus's you know, steps and to walk in God's light, we are commanded to love. We are commanded to love one another. And oftentimes, you know, love, while it should be unconditional, it oftentimes isn't. And it's hard to love something if you don't know it. 
And this is where the, we kind of go full circle here with the knowledge. And I've found the more I understand uh, Muhammad, like the closer I can actually be to my fellow human beings who don't, who aren't Christian and that's okay with me. You know, I'm, I'm focusing day, on humanity. At the end of the day, he was a human being who was a strong leader and was. did many things for uh, Middle Eastern civilization and, and other things. So even if you don't want to theologically go along with him to uh, vilify the whole man is, is erroneous. You know, I, I've read now about four biographies on him by Christians and others, just trying to understand. I've read the Quran. And I don't find, uh, and I've read books on Islamic history, and I'm, I'm not a scholar like you are, Craig, but I, I have not found the man, uh, frankly, that, uh, I, that I was told that he was. I, I love this movie, Dancing with Wolves, you know, oh, Kevin yeah. Costner. Yeah. I love this line in the movie uh, where he's writing in his journal after having gone to the village and he's back at the, you know, his fort. And he says, these people are not who I was told that they were, mm. you know, and he falls in love with them. I, I felt that way. Now your book, I'm excited about it. And thank you so much for sending me my own autographed copy. <laughs> if you die next week, it'll be up in value. So I'm grateful. <laughs> now, now this, this is a really good book. Uh, thank you. Did, if I read that book, can I get it all? Is that pretty much the essence of what you teach about Muhammad or talk to me about that? Good question. I mean, the, so the book has seven chapters and I talk about civic nation building, which as this is another element why I respect Muhammad, like the ideal type of nation that I want to live in as an American in the America that I love and that I'm proud of is the civic nation, which is rooted in the constitution and the declaration of independence. This is not supposed to be a country in which religion, race, ethnicity, cultural backdrop really um, determines your, your sense of belonging. And Muhammad, when he migrated to Medina in 622, created a, a civic nation that incorporated Muslims, pagans, and Jews together, and they created a constitution. Now, things turned sour. I don't necessarily talk about that in the book, but it didn't turn sour, Bob, between Jews and Muslims because of theological differences, I don't think. And I think most scholars would agree things fell apart because of politics. Yeah. Politics often divide us. I also focus in the book on religious pluralism, you know, this idea of moving beyond merely like tolerating one another. You know, as a, as a Christian, the word tolerance when it comes to kind of embracing other people doesn't really fit with me. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of commanded to push even further, to love unconditionally, to love the people that no one else wants to love. That's what we're supposed to do. And Muhammad did that with the uh, various Christian communities, specifically the Christians of Nadran, who, Bob, he allowed the Christians of Nadran to pray inside his mosque in the year 630 in an incredible kind of revolutionary idea. I love that story. You know what I believe? If the That's prophet that. Muhammad were alive today, you and I could go to Mecca. You know, I was taught, and Medina, and Medina. I think so. Is, yeah, and like, this is one of those topics, Bob, that like, you know, 
I want to have these conversations, but <laughs> with with a lot of Muslims, you know, as someone who kind of engages in, in bridge building, like it's one of those one of those topics that it's hard to really, you know, discuss because you don't want to kind of hijack things and 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 walk over other people. But I agree. I mean, I would I would love to visit Mecca or Medina. Absolutely. So hey, Craig, with that, with your book, what are some of your Muslim friends saying about it? Like, are they, what's their reaction to a Christian view to this? So the, the response has been pretty positive. And a lot of people are saying that, and again, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but they're saying that I'm describing Muhammad in ways that a lot of Muslim theologians have not done before. And I think I come from a unique perspective because I'm a sociologist hmm. and I was talking about stories earlier and the power of stories. And that's really what I like to focus on. And I speak about these issues, not only through a historical lens, but through a contemporary lens. So a lot of the Muslims who are reading this are saying, hey, I see why this is relevant to what's happening right now with the anti-racism, with the women's rights. I dedicate a whole chapter to women's rights. Now, of course, there is going to be criticism, inevitably. Uh, a lot of Muslims question my intentions. Mm. They're confused as to why I haven't uh, converted to Islam. A lot of people think I write books for money, and I can assure you I live a very, very humble life, and there's no money in writing books. So... <laughs> oh, overwhelmingly, though, it's been it's been a um, it's been a positive response, and you know I'm I'm thankful for that. And it's written in an easy way that anyone can kind of read. Yeah. Well, one of the things we always ask people that are bridge builders, obviously, like yourself, is you do face a lot of criticism. Bob faces a lot of criticism, right? So how do you, how do you deal with that once you get it? How do you respond to that? That's a really good question. And Bob, I'd like to just say thank you and keep going because I admire you and all the work that you do. Thanks. So the first thing I typically do is um, I ignore it. Mm. Um, I was raised to have thick skin. My parents taught me to be passionate about what you love and what you stand for. And my mother taught me as well to remember who I am subjected to in terms of judgment. It's God. It's not necessarily my, my peers. And I, let me be clear. Obviously I care about what my loved ones think and my friends and of course, yeah. but you know, when I, when I'm getting a message from some Imam that I've never met in my life and he is basically, you know, defaming me, I mean, am I supposed to let that get to me? No. I mean, I, I keep my focus on the higher mission, which is a lot of things. It's, it's scholarship, it's, it's bridge building, but ultimately it's who I think God is. God to me is about all of his creation, all of humanity, about peace, about love, about understanding and compassion. And I have to, rem I have to remind myself of these things because I'm also human. And sometimes, you know, I do get messages and I'm like, it, it brings me down. It happened during um, the Hagia Sophia controversy. So I came out publicly and said, I wish the Hagia Sophia 
remained what it was, a secular museum. And I said, if it's going to be converted into a place of worship, let's have it be a church and a mosque, and we can find ways of sharing it. I like that. Right? And I just got destroyed, absolutely destroyed by um, a lot of Turkish national nationalists, but also a lot of um, people from around the world, you know, questioning my intentions and, and bashing me and saying, you know, they, they said that they always knew that I was, you know, a fraud. So, I mean, it does get annoying, but I got thick skin, you know, I just think to myself, what would my, what would my parents say? Like, what would they encourage me to do? They'd say, keep going, you know, just keep going. That's good. Uh, actually, Bob, I have a question for you. I know you mentioned that you've read the Quran as well, and you've obviously befriended a lot of Muslims along your way. Uh, what have you learned from your reading of the Quran? And is it, did it make you realize something you didn't know before? Did it make your faith stronger? Talk a little bit about that. I'd say uh, it did three things for me. Number one, uh, it, it showed me that in terms of values and convictions and beliefs, there's not near as much difference as I thought. I, I went into it expecting uh, that there was this whole new set of, of uh, things that I would hear in terms of values, morals, theologies, uh, not necessarily so. Uh, any evangelical Christian that would read the Quran, 98% uh, of it, you would go, yeah, it's stories, it has morals, it has values. Uh, so so uh, that's what it did for me. There, there are, you know, we talk about Judeo-Christian values. If you read the Quran, honestly, Judeo-Christian, you could add Islamic to that. I agree. I always say that. So, I mean, I think that's the first thing. It shocked me. Second of all, how clear it was at the points we do disagree. It wasn't like it was trying to step around or sneak around. So I'm an evangelical, I'm orthodox. So yes, I'm going to believe that Jesus was God. Yes, I'm going to believe that he died on the cross and he was resurrected. Okay, the Quran is real clear. It doesn't believe that. But something else about it, it's not vicious in attacking me because I believe that. If anything, it says to respect people of the book. Here's a third thing I saw, that prayer is a big deal with Muslims. I mean, you got to keep in mind the whole Quran, and, and Craig, please correct me, you're the scholar, I am not, but it was amazing to me. The whole Quran was revealed, it's prayers, basically, and, and if you were to ask me, why do you think Islam is the religion it is, I have one answer, prayer. Yes, I understand the belief in Muhammad and their understanding of God, but they pray. And it's, it's a serious thing. I'll never forget being in Afghanistan. First time I was ever with Muslims in my life in 2002. And I'm out in the desert uh, with these Afghan people and uh, they're protecting me. And I don't know if they're protecting me or they're going <laughs> to kill me, but they throw out their mats and they begin to pray. And so I just stood there. I didn't know what to do. And, uh, they did it, and they didn't care. The second day, they threw out their mats again, and they began to pray when we started the day off. And I thought, you know what? They're praying to God. I may not agree with their understanding of God, but they're praying to God. So I knelt down in the sand, 
And when I did, as one of them was kneeling their head down, they saw, and I don't know if they should have done this or not, they stopped praying, put a mat beside them, and he said in very broken English, here, Bob, you pray with me. Now, I didn't kneel right, didn't do it right, but it didn't matter. I was praying in my own way. Yeah, Josh, I can't tell you the impact that had on my life and has had on my life. So I've heard you say, I'm sorry, were you going to ask another question, Josh? No, I was just going to say, why Why is it you both have read the Quran, obviously, Craig, you're, you're a scholar, and uh, why, why do you think it's important? What would you say to Christians? Why, why should they do that? Why should they read the Quran? Why should other religions know more about other religions? Why do you think that's important, Craig? Let me answer that as a pastor, Craig. You answer it as yeah. a scholar. I, I would say because you've read the Old Testament, the New, or Hebrew Scriptures, the New Testament, I think you should read the Quran because it's another story of Abrahamic people. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think it's it's uh, understanding their faith and history. Uh, if the Quran was all there was to Islam, I think it would be easier to be a Muslim. I get lost in all the Hadiths, mm. but the Quran is is pretty straightforward. And I think it will... I think it will put people at ease. You'll see the differences. I once met someone said, I'm not reading that book because I'll get deceived. Well, only if you can't read, because if you can read, it's clear where the differences are. So I would say um, to echo what you just said, Bob, I agree with that stuff. From a demographic angle, and when we talk about the future of the world, yeah, 50% of the world is essentially either Christian or Muslim, which is, it's a striking number. So in in many ways, you know, I like to use the old American term, common sense, obviously Thomas Paine, bringing it up in light of no taxation without representation, which is very important as well. But what if we reimagined common sense today? What what does that mean? Is Is it sensical for us as Christians to really understand this massive population that is living around the world and as Americans that our country is entangled with and has been entangled with for quite some time. So I really don't think we can afford to have this misunderstanding, to have this lack of knowledge of something like the the Quran. It really makes sense for Christians to engage with it. And they don't have to engage with it for theological truths. You know, like you don't have to read the Quran and, and be worried that, oh, you might come out of this not believing in Jesus anymore. Just read it, let it sink in. And that's an important process, just understanding what it says. You know, I, I think I think what you're saying, Craig, is so critical because Muslims aren't going away. Christians aren't going away. You need to understand. And it, I think the problem we have today is there was a day when the, the Christians were in the West, the Muslims in the Middle East. Uh, there'd be some overlap, but not a lot. But now every religion is everywhere. Yep. And I don't understand why we just can't disagree with a religion. Why do we have to trash it? You yeah. know, I mean, it's as if I'm not just going to disagree. I've got to destroy that religion. Right. One of my spiritual fathers is passed away. He was 87 a couple of years ago. And he used to always say, very influential man, he would say, Bob, you don't ever have to 
criticize another religion, just lift up Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's your job. That's it. And, and I thought, you know, he, he, he's right, because if your faith can't stand on its own feet without trashing another religion, mm. uh, you're in trouble. Craig, you said something that just really stuck with me. I think you've said it about three or four times now. Love. Mm. I mean, love. That, that is a big deal. It's, when it's all said and done, love is the core of the Christian faith. What role does that play in, in your life personally as you write the book that you just wrote, as you, as you relate to Muslims? I mean, here you relate to me. You're a progressive Catholic. I'm an Orthodox evangelical. <laughs> We disagree. We were having fun talking about our disagreements before this started, mm -hmm. but yet you're warm. I mean, what's talk to me about that? Well, I'd say this. Um, I think scholarship, producing books, producing articles is a labor of love in a way. Um, it's it's towards you know better understanding, towards knowledge, which could potentially lead us to bridge building. Um, but love, you know, let me start by. Let me start by saying this. I often in interfaith circles will not begin a conversation with a Muslim about Islam. What I like to start with are things that are relevant to human beings across the board. And I often like to start with who people love. So you start talking about your parents, you start talking about your, your siblings, your friends, your role models, the people, the people who you love. And I think this is a really important way of making authentic, genuinely authentic connections with people. And when, when people can see that, that you love and when someone like myself or you, Bob, can kind of probe people on this issue of love and then what we basically have is just love emanating out of both of us. And then together it creates something that is hopefully um, something that can proliferate. Um, so books are a labor of love. Um, family. What was the question? I'm kind of losing it. What was it? No, it was just the whole thing about love. What role does that play? You, you, used oh, yeah, the yeah. Word, you, you described it four times. Jesus said, love, we got to love. And so I was just, I mean, it's, it's, that. It's really everything for a Christian. But I will say this, it's also one of the hardest commandments, 100%. You know, to Jesus believed in a radical love, a radical, bold love. Bold love, yes, bold love. A bold love. <laughs> I mean, you know, and it makes me, you know, when I reflect on the stories that we have of him, you know, it really, it humbles me, but it also pushes me to be better because I am imperfect. And I don't think I, I love everyone all the time, but that's what I, that's what I strive to do. I strive to find ways of connecting with people to create that, that atmosphere of love but it's, it's hard. It's really, really hard, especially when you're mistreated, you're looked down upon. Um, you know, how do we event not long ago? And I was hanging out with some Muslims and it was a Christian event, uh, but there were many Muslims that were there for different reasons, a national event. And I was laughing with these Muslims 
uh, just talking, just generally, I hadn't seen him in a while. And this man came over and just began to yell, how can you be friends with these Muslims? What is wrong with you, Bob? What, what a shame. And I just, you know, I, I didn't even say anything, Craig. I thought, what can I say to that man? Mm. You know, what is the deal? Because the reality is Jesus loved them all, enemies included. I'm mm. bothered by the state of civility. You know, we're trying to reintroduce that to get people to be civil. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Can you? I don't know if you can have civil discourse without some amount of love and respect. What, what do you see in the current uh, scenario? How, how do you see current relations between Muslims and Christians? Is it good, bad? Are you concerned about it? How do we need to address it? Well, I'm writing a book proposal at the moment, and I'm unsure of its title. But the book is basically broken down into 12 chapters at the moment. And I'm focusing on about 17 countries. And I'm looking at Christian and Muslim relations in these countries and perceptions of Christians among Muslims and vice versa. And I was pretty shocked even last weekend when I pretty much wrapped up my research. In Muslim majority countries, Christians are not treated very well at all. And in Western countries that happen to be Christian majority, Muslims are not treated very well, or at least Muslims don't think they're being treated very well, right? So the cases I'm using, the United States, the UK, Spain, and Italy, I was really disheartened to see how much the Italians, which I'm half Italian, the the distrust and the hate they have towards Muslims, it's, it's one of the highest in the European Union. And then we flip it. We go to Saudi Arabia. We go to Pakistan, Turkey. I mean, it's like a mirror image of each other. So at that level, it's very, very concerning. But at more of a micro level, I feel like there's a lot of hope. You know, the work that you do, Bob, the work that multiple, you know, thousands really of interfaith activists, of scholars, of of religious leaders are doing at a local level is really inspiring. So I feel like we kind of have these two frames in a way, you know, the, the, the macro side is not good when we look at pictures, when we look at geopolitics, but then, you know, we have all of these amazing stories. Like one story I'm focusing on Nigeria, uh, Mali in, in Nigeria as one of my case studies. And there is an Imam named Imam Ab, uh, Abu Bakr Abdullahi. And a couple of years ago, he was outside of his mosque and a militia of Muslims, probably someone affiliated with Boko Haram, came marching and Imam Abdullahi just saw all these Christians running towards his mosque. And the Imam opened up his mosque doors to give shelter to like 257 Christians that were about to be slaughtered. Now, thankfully, our U.S. State Department awarded Imam Abdullahi with a significant award, and it was covered by mainstream media outlets, but most people don't know of those stories, unfortunately. So there is hope, but there's a real challenge, too. And I'm not even talking about the apathy either. I haven't even gotten into apathy. Like, why don't people care about improving Mm -hmm. Christian-Muslim relations? 
And I think the implications goes beyond uh, just uh, Christians and Muslims and how they get along, but humanitarian issues, uh, health, hunger. Uh, I've thought many times, what in the world could we do together if we were to come together and say, we may disagree on theology, but man, we agree on humanity. Yeah. I, I had the privilege of going to the Rohingya uh, camps uh, with uh, Rabbi Ambassador David Saperstein and Imam Majid, who you know, and that's how on our list. You know, there's a few Christians doing things, a few Muslims, and, and we got to thinking, you know, wouldn't it be cool if people of faith could say, hey, our faith teaches us we need to work together to do something. Yeah. I want my kids to grow up to be friends with people. I don't care who they are and their race, religion, even if they disagree with them, I want them desperately uh, to be able to get along with people and see value. Uh, when I see people, used to, when I would see people, my first thought was sinner, because that's what I was raised with. And it's true. You guys came up with original sin as Catholics. We improved on it, called it total depravity. We took it to a whole new level. But the truth of the matter yeah. I have <laughs> Catholic guilt, like real bad, uh, like real bad. We'll be a Baptist for a little while. We'll, we'll trump you. <laughs> but the reality is, when you think about it, the whole implication for how we relate, we ought to see the image of God in people. Yeah. You know, when I see Absolutely. the image of God, then there's sacredness there. Sinner, you bet. I've blown it. You've blown it. Mm -hmm. Josh has really blown it. You man, have, I'm I'm messy, man. I'm I mean, you man. Have, this guy's a sorry dog. <laughs> okay, Craig, I want to ask you some questions and I'll let you go. What's your favorite food, Craig? So it would be medium shells pasta with tomato sauce with double cream, onions, diced, garlic, diced, basil, parsley, and a lot of Parmesan cheese. Man, that was super specific. <laughs> like it's usually like, oh, I like lasagna. This, this guy goes. To well, well, you know, my mother. Um, that's where I got my my Catholic roots through my Italian mother, and they were very, very traditional. And when I was growing up, our home was largely filled with that Italian family vibe, mm -hmm. and my mother cooked all the time. And I must say, my wife Miriam is very lucky because I cook all the time, every oh, nice. day, and I pretty much cook pasta all the time. So I love all it. Right, next question: How has being a dad changed you? Your brand new father. Oh wow! How has it changed me? You know, I think it has given me an even grander understanding of just the beauty of our creator and of life. So it's kind of building, it's, it's reassuring me of the beauty of life and not, you know, and I mean, literally life, like a human beating heart. Uh, so it, it's been, it's been awe inspiring. It's been, it's been humbling, but ultimately it's just reassuring of that love of this idea too, that life, should be enjoyed and you should love those closest to you. Um, that's what I would say, Bob. I think you're the first one to uh, ask me that question. So <laughs> that's got to go in your journal. You got to think about that. I will. Right. 
Okay, can I give you one bit of fatherly advice? Please. <laughs> because I know you wanted me to. <laughs> so, so how old is your baby? Six months, a year? Six weeks. Six weeks, okay. Yeah. All right, you've got time to do this. I want you to go buy your, I'll, I'll pay for it. I'll tell you what, I'll ship you one. I've got your address. I'm going to get you a wide margin Bible. Oh, that would be amazing. We a were good th- one. Yeah. Good one. And and the Pope will be fine with the one that I send you. All right. <laughs> and it's going to in the it's going to have margins, and in the back it's going to have pages. And I want you to write that child one prayer a week for the next eighteen years, and write it on her birthday, and write it on, and just things that happen through their life, date them, and put it in the back of the Bible. When my wife's mother died, she was five. Her most treasured possession is a Bible that her first Bible she had that her mother gave to her and her mother wrote her a little message. Wow. That motivated my wife and I to write prayers for our children. That's so amazing. We've done it. I won't make you do what I do. I go through the whole Bible and write a prayer every single day. But if you'll do that, will you? if you'll do it, I'll send you the Bible. No pressure. Bob, I, uh, I swear to God I would do it. Um, and I will do it. Um, I think it's a great idea. Um, I've already written a, not a prayer necessarily, but I posted something on social media, a reflection of, you know, Clara coming into this world. I think it's a great idea. We've actually been thinking about getting Clara a Bible. And this is a great opportunity. I would be thrilled if you sent it to us. And I'll say this as well, Bob. Miriam, my wife, her father passed away when she was four and one of the heirlooms is a bible in spanish because miriam's from from mexico wow so all of these things are kind of lining up here and it makes sense i think for us to kind of or at least for me to embark on this exciting idea Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode and along this storytelling journey with the Bold Love Podcast and Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. We are so honored that you would take time um, to listen to our podcast, and we hope that it really did impact you uh, by the conversation, by the laughs, and really how personal it gets uh, with these interviews. Um, We would love for you to continue to share it with people if it has impacted you Uh, And for more information on the entire podcast, show notes, links to the different things that we talk about in the episode, and any references, you can go to bobrobertsjr.com slash podcast. That's bobrobertsjr.com slash podcast, and you can get all the information there. Thank you so much again for joining us. And remember, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Have a great day.